Wow, who wants to go to Rwanda, huh? By the way, the guy that did the announcements there at the end, he is jacked. You should see him in the gym. I told him he needs to do the announcements in a tank top sometime. He is, he is ripped. But that was powerful. Y'all, y'all know what I'm like now when you don't respond. I mean, between the testimony at offering time, the worship, what you just heard, I mean, if, if that didn't help you encounter Christ, I mean, this isn't. This is just going to make you feel really bad because I'm going to beat you up. But, I mean, our God is amazing. What, what else in this world is going to cause somebody to forgive somebody that murders their entire family other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I mean, that's, that's powerful. You take the last box of Fruit Loops in Walmart, and it's like, it's on in America. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean... It's just, wow, that was a powerful, powerful video. Um, so we are in a series we have called The Fight. And uh, obviously part five, I get the helmet of salvation. Bob the Silver Surfer is going to help me by adorning his helmet here in a little while. And uh, this is not a knock on Seth at all, but this dude is just, he's sad to me. He's just, he's weak. He's kind of soft looking. And uh, I don't know. And without the helmet, he looks even more softer. So we're going to get him suited up today. And I'm, his stance, he's kind of like prancing a little bit. But that's Bob. And he's, he's doing a great job just doing what he's supposed to do. That's standing there. So this is week five. The first four weeks, we've had uh, the belt of truth. Mark started us off, our, our lead pastor, in teaching us on the belt of truth out of Ephesians 6 and just the the reality and the importance that every bit of the armor of God obviously builds on itself, but that it has to start with that foundation of truth. Truth is where everything flows from. And we live in a, in a day and in a country and in a time where culture does not like absolute truths. It's what is true for you can be true for you, and my truth can be true for me. And if they disagree, they're still equally true, which is the stupidest logic in the world. But that's just how our culture and society is today. We, we don't want to be convicted of anything. And, and I just love that, that we started looking at absolute truth. What does Scripture say? What is truth? Christ uh, talking to Pilate when Pilate said, what is truth? Uh, so that, that's where we started. Week two, we moved into the breastplate of righteousness where we talked about guarding our heart, one of the most important facets that God has made us with. Uh, week three was the gospel of peace and how we take that with us wherever we go. Obviously, last week, uh, Pastor M, you killed it. You slayed it. The shield of faith, if you weren't here, you totally missed out. I would encourage you to watch it online. It was just, it was so powerful to sit there be, behind your family on the second row and just see how much God had deposited in you and see you wrestling with just trying to just convey that and get that out. I love that. I'll sit in that all day long because if God has put something into you, I want it. And so that was powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, so we look at the shield of faith. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier this week, the helmet of salvation. Now, I love what Paul does. If, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. We're going to start there, but then we're going to move over to Psalm 55, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today. But I love how Paul introduces this concept of the armor of God and of spiritual warfare. He does not start by inviting us into spiritual warfare. He does not start by trying to give us a hard sell or even a soft sell. Either way to kind of say like, look, 
this is something you really need to wrestle with, and this is something you need to consider. Paul doesn't do that. Paul jumps right in and just assumes as a fact that we are in spiritual warfare. That is absolutely essential. Now, I'm talking to you as the church while I realize at the same time there are going to be men and women here under the sound of my voice this morning that are not part of the church. There's going to be people in this room that do not do not surrender their life completely to God and to Jesus Christ and accept what he did for them on the cross. I get that. So understand that when I say to you, as the church, Paul automatically assumes because of what Scripture teaches and what he has lived, you are in a fight. And so when he gets into the text here, he doesn't jump in by trying to convince us of that, trying to set us up to say, yeah, maybe this armor is something I should consider. Paul approaches this from, you have no life apart from this fight. This is what life is about. So I want to read the text to you. We're going to jump right in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10, and uh, see what Paul has to say about it. You're familiar with this. If you've been coming, we've been reading this. I want to read it again, though. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, not just the parts that appeal to you. Put it all on, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in case we think he's uh, not talking about our arch enemy, Satan, Lucifer, he goes on in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you are not my enemy. Oh, come on, people. You got it. Come on. Let's wake up, crowd. I know it's early. Turn to someone. You are not my enemy. Thank God they're not your enemy. They kick your butt the way you're responding this morning. The person sitting in this room, I don't care if they know Christ or don't know Christ, are not your enemy. They are not the ones you battle with. They are not your struggle. I don't care how annoying they are. I don't care how much I frustrate you. I don't care if you like me, don't like me. I'm not your enemy. All right? Satan is our enemy. And Paul wants us to understand that. We are fighting against the schemes of the devil, against the powers and presence of darkness in this world. Well, I'm fired up. We're just starting, too. This is good. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Verse 17, my text, and take the helmet of salvation. And he finishes by saying, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And I'm looking forward to that sermon because our very own pastor, Nathan, children's pastor, is going to be bringing it. It's going to be good. Be praying for him. Be praying for him. He is in the word and it's going to be powerful. So Paul tells us, Take up this armor. And so we've, we've looked at different elements, and today we're going to look at the helmet. And what better way to illustrate the helmet than with helmets, right? So this is really powerful because you can almost instantly, with just about any helmet, 
identify what's going on, right? What, what do we got here? What's this used for? Bicycle, that's right. Now, if any of you said Harley or uh, scooter or roller skates, uh, you're, you're out of touch, okay? You're out of touch. Or if you're like, you know, oh, you, you're playing out in the driveway. You're a modern-day parent. You need to knock that crap off, all right? Uh, it's just ridiculous. Like, we can't, we can't walk down to the bathroom without a helmet on anymore in our society. It's just, oh, no, wrap them up in pillows there. You know, we used to make like spears with knives in the woods out of sticks and play war, me and my buddies. And, you know, I turned out jacked up, but I, I still have all my limbs. So uh, now uh, this is a no brainer. Of course, it's of the, the wrong genre, but we're getting ready to enter into uh, or, or the wrong team, I guess I should say, not genre. But we, we know what this is, right? If we see someone walk out onto a baseball diamond wearing this helmet, what are we going to say? wrong field. you tripping. You're in the wrong place, boo. You need to get out of here. That's a football helmet. That ain't going to do you no good. You're not going to be able to see what's going on around you, right? You're not going to know what that is. Of course, this one, not as popular in the South, but still, we, we pretty much, I mean, some of you might be thinking, well, that's a lacrosse helmet. It's not lacrosse. Uh, this is a hockey helmet. Now, you may not like hockey. I would challenge you, if you ever get the chance to go to a live game, watch it. It'll change how you feel about the game. Uh, really powerful game. I'm not a huge hockey fan, but I appreciate the talent. But I, I see this, and right away I'm like, okay, that dude plays hockey. And you want something like that. I mean, a, a piece of a, a rubber tire melted down to a disc like that coming at you really fast will get your attention. Right now, this is amazing. I have got to be so gentle with this. What do you guys think this is? All right, you're, you're all pretty much right. we got a lot of different answers. Aviator helmet. Uh, firefighter helmet. This helmet costs $4,000. I'm actually shaking a little bit. And I actually need to hang it on this side because my left arm's or right arm's a little numb. The, the guy that let us borrow, I know, right? I'm like, I was going to put it on this morning. Not going to happen. Like my daughter's in the Navy. Okay. She has never seen Top Gun. They should boot her back home just for that. And I'll gladly take her. But this is the kind of action you see in, in a killer flick like Top Gun, Maverick, Goose, and is anybody with me? Any Christians in the house this morning? Right? These things are amazing. $4,000. You see someone walking down. They can be wearing overalls, walking down a runway, wearing this, and you're like, that dude, that chick, they bad. They, they got something going on, right? That, that is amazing. And you are all my witnesses, safe and sound to this point on the table. Look at this. World War II helmet. Army. Isn't that amazing? This is, this, I've got to be very careful. This is an heirloom. I believe if I have this right, this is the Gaskew's grandfather's helmet. That's pretty intense, right? That's going to mess up my dude. It don't sit real good, but let me tell you, that thing's solid. That thing's solid. Wow, you just have to take my word for it. I mean, it's, it's got to be so uncomfortable in that thing. And, of course, we, we got a couple others. We got, I mean, some of you wear, the, anybody wear hats like this in your job? I feel like I should wear one doing social work sometime. Uh, but, I mean, this thing, it's designed what? What is this designed for? Anybody tell me? What do you think this is for? Construction so you don't hit your head, right, son? You're paying attention. That's good. Take notes. Your dad's going to say something good today. All right? It's, it's designed to protect your head. It's designed to kind of look out for you. And, of course, we have the helmet we're talking about this morning. Now, helmets play an extremely important role in the armor of a soldier. 
even more so back when Paul taught this, even more so. Because back then you had people with battle axes and swords trying to hit you where you're vulnerable, up here, right? And so soldiers would, would adorn themselves in helmet. They were often a, a, a rounded uh, leather bowl, essentially, that was overlaid in metal and in studs and, and things of that nature. And oftentimes they would pack the inside. Now, I am not putting this one on my head. Uh, I'll look worse than Bob. And that's saying something. Uh, but they, they would pack the inside with like a sponge material or extra cloth or something like that if they could get it uh, because they wanted to be comfortable out in the heat. Come on, Bob, stay with me. And, uh, and, 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 and they would wear that in a battle formation so that if anything penetrated that shield wall and they broke from that, as Matthew taught last week, and they were charging or whatever, they had an armor that would protect them. But something that Rome did that was very unique is Rome would make these ornate helmets, and they would do it for a reason. They would often, this one has like a lion engraved on the top. Often they would have uh, animals or uh, farming and uh, horticulture, stuff like that, designed and engraved on the helmet to show wealth, to show nobility, to show pride, to show that they were from uh, the upper echelon of society. And they would always cover it on, on top with this, what we see as feathers today, but it was often dyed horse hair. And sometimes it would be so long, it would prance down to the middle of their back. And you, know, you can imagine, you've seen like some of these uh, really good flicks like Gladiator and different things where you see these soldiers walking down, they got that thing flowing down the middle. You're like, that looks awesome. That's intimidating. Well, the reason they wore that is they did it on purpose so that they would stand out, so that they would be noticeable so that people would look at him and say, wow, that is lavish. That is extravagant. That is just something that is incredible. And you would look at it and you would instantly recognize their position just based on looking at the helmet. I love this quote. I put it in your notes from uh, Denise Renner. She says this, why would the Holy Spirit compare a piece of weaponry like this to salvation? Because Your salvation is the most gorgeous, most intricate, most elaborate, most ornate gift God has ever given you. Paul calls this gift the helmet of salvation. And the helmet of salvation is designed, it designates and declares our position in Christ. When we adorn ourselves with this helmet, the world should look at us and should be able to say, Wow, that is extravagant. Wow, look at their life. Wow, do you hear what they're saying? And I'm not talking about the bling bling and the things around them. I'm talking about how we carry ourselves, how we conduct ourselves. We should have a noticeable difference in us as the sons and daughters of the king based on the helmet of salvation. It declares our position. And it's not a cocky, arrogant, like, yeah, check it out, I've got the red. No, it's not that. It's bold. It's confidence. It's courage to say, I am a son, I am a daughter of the king. Take notice. That is a powerful declaration that Paul gives us. But it's also a reminder that our security is in him. And it essentially does this. It protects us against discouragement. You're like, well, how did you get that? The helmet of salvation. Salvation establishes our position. Salvation tells us who we are and what our destiny is. If you don't know Christ, then you are going to be hopeless and helpless in this life. 
Apart from Christ, you will just flutter through life hoping that things will get better. Attempting new things and trying new routines and challenges and things to push you and motivate you and improve your life. But a child of God knows this life is not important. Child of God knows my home is not this world. I'm just passing through. Child of God knows my destiny, my eternity is at the feet of the King of Kings. That is who I am. That is where I belong. So this world has no sway over me. And when you as a child of God can live in that place, that changes everything. And when you don't have that, when you don't have security, when you don't have stability, when you don't have a knowledge that you are loved as you are, that you are seen as perfect and beautiful in the eyes of God, and there is nothing you can do to improve that or tarnish that. As far as God is concerned, when you come to Him and you are His, you are it. You are everything. And apart from that knowledge, apart from that insight, that that helmet of salvation... Apart from that, wow, there is depression, there is struggle, there is heaviness of life, discouragement. I believe, I can honestly tell you, I believe with all my heart, one of Satan's most effective weapons against us is discouragement. To get us to take our helmet, leave it in the closet, and go live life and doing the best we can, occasionally checking in spiritually and doing whatever we can to get by. He loves to discourage us and attack us. Show of hands, how many in here ever been depressed in your life? Yeah, right? And and I'm not talking about just like, wow, this lighting's so bad, I can't get a good selfie. I'm talking like life is hard. Like you're, you're actually questioning what is the purpose and point of life. Have you ever been there? I've been there multi, I've been there as a kid when I went through my abuse and stuff. I got so depressed, I, I contemplated suicide. To me, I wrestled with, is it better to even just be alive at this point? Just just take my life. And certainly later on in my life, when, when I com- committed adultery and lost friends and lost just about everybody in life that, that loved me, walked away, and I hit the lowest of lows. I didn't think you could recover from that. I didn't think there was a light outside of that dark pit that I had fallen into. I'm talking depression. I'm talking discouragement. I'm talking the enemy will love to kick you so far down you don't think you can get up again. I was reading a psych study. I I, I read a lot of psychology stuff or look into things going on just again because of the nature of what I work with with juveniles that have just extreme emotional issues and so I work with just every kid I have has a diagnosis of depression, is suicidal uh, ideation filled, homicidal ideation filled. I mean they're just they are struggling with their identity and who they are. And so I read a lot of stuff. And I was reading this study that was published by Twinge and Campbell last November 2018. They did this study they published. And they studied uh, young people between the ages of 2 and 17. 2 and 17. And on average, now it's not across the board, but on average, young people spend between 5 to 7 hours a day on some type of screen or device. 5 to 7 hours a day on a phone, an iPad, a, uh, a computer screen, on some type of device. And what they found in that study, the kids that did that as opposed to the kids that didn't, were 50% of the time more anxious and more depressed than the kids that never even interacted with it. What's even further, and there's a lot of stats, I'm just giving you a couple, what's even further like just shocking to me, 46% of the preschool age kids they looked at 
46% of them are more likely to lose their temper and not calm down when they're excited because they cannot control their emotions. It's, it's even beyond just the technology aspect. Our culture in every area tells us what? We're not good enough. What we have is not good enough. We are not good enough looking. Our car is not slick enough, fast enough, dependable enough. The food we eat could be better, right? The, the devices we have could be updated to the latest version. Our job's not good enough. We need another education. We need more pay. We need a better neighborhood. We need a, a newer girlfriend, a newer boyfriend. We need a newer spouse. Uh, we should trade our kids in if possible because they're hellions. It's like no matter where you look, we're constantly told, nope, you got there. Guess what? Not good enough. Oh, you're in shape. Not good enough. Now you've got to be super in shape. Oh, you ran a marathon? Not good. Now you got to run super marathons. Oh, not, you know, you're benching, I don't even know, I don't bench, obviously, but you know, you're benching 200, not good enough. You get, there's always one thing more. It's like the rug constantly getting pulled out from under us because it's just never good enough. And there's a vast difference between, as I said, living in the confidence, the confidence of who Jesus says I am, of who I belong to, and what the world throws at us. We are called, I believe, as we look at Scripture, to adorn ourselves with perspective, with knowledge, and with truth. And that's what the helmet of salvation gives us. It gives us a perspective. I look at things through his eyes, not society's eyes. It gives me a knowledge. I know what Jesus Christ says about me. I know that he says, all that the Father has given me, I have lost none. I know that he says, I came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. I know that he says in Scripture, his grace is sufficient. It gives us a knowledge, but it also gives us truth. Things we can plant our flag on and say, regardless of what changes around me, this I know. When I struggle with my addictions, when I fall back in my bad habits, when things are rough at home, when things aren't going the way they should, this I know is true. God loves me, and I am his. So we're going to flip over to Psalm 55, I want to just, just walk through this story very quick, quickly with you. It's 22 verses, but we're going to hit it quick. Don't panic. We're going to hit it quick. And I want to look at this idea of Satan coming at us in the area of discouragement when we don't have the helmet of salvation. You'll see both of those things in this text. So a quick backdrop to the story here. Psalm 55 is a song that David wrote in one of the darkest seasons of his life. He has just experienced treason. He has just experienced betrayal at probably the deepest level you can experience it. His own son, Absalom, has conspired to take over the kingdom from him and to remove him and to execute him, not only as his father, but as his king, so that he can then rule in his place. And on top of that, not only is his own son doing this to him, his son whom he loves and adores and admires more than, than any of his children, Scripture tells us he just had such a heart for Absalom. On top of that, Absalom goes to David's best friend, his top counselor, the guy that David went to church and hung out with every week and worshipped together. He goes to Ahithophel and convinces him to join him in this traitorous activity of overthrowing King David. And David is on the run. He has fled from Jerusalem with his wives and his remaining children and his servants. And he is on the run, hiding, fearful of his life. And he pins this psalm 
to us. And I want to just jump right in. We're going to look at it by paragraphs and break out a few things, and then we'll be done. So let's start verses 1 through 7. David says this, Give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away and I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. What language? I don't know if you captured any of that in the text. If you have your pen, you can go back and and mark some of these words down. But David says his soul is crushed. It is oppressed. It is troubled. He is in anguish. There is terror, death, fear, trembling, horror, overwhelming him. We're not talking like someone got his his breakfast wrong in the morning. We're talking he feels he is at the lowest of lows and he is just struggling and he's crying out to God, begging God, please hear me, show up. Have you ever been so desperate that you've called out to God and he feels a million miles away? That is where David is here. He's pleading, he's begging God, don't be silent. I need you. I'm at the bottom of the pit here. Help me out, please. I would do anything to get away. He doesn't even plead for like, give me, give me the wings of an eagle so I can majestically rise above my enemies. He says, no, give me these dove wings, a swift, quick little bird that'll help me just get away from it all as quickly as possible. Just get me out of this situation. Can you relate to David this morning? Somebody say, yes. I can relate to that. I have been there. And we get to the end of this section, and God gives us the most beautiful gift. He says, Selah. We don't really know the full translation of this word. It's somewhat mysterious to us. Uh, But what we do gather, what we understand, what scholars and theologians have taught us and, and have come to understand is that at its core, it means that you need to rest. You need to be silent for a moment. You need to pause and reflect on what you just heard sung to you. Well, how does that tie in? To me, this is as if God is saying, hey, before you move any further, stop for a minute and let this truth, this perspective, this knowledge sink in. I get it. I know what you're going through. I believe this is God through David communicating to us that he understands when you're in your darkest pit and you feel all alone and no one hears you. Why can I say that? Because Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, like David, was in the pit begging God, show up. My soul is in terror. It's in horror. I'm overwhelmed. I'm in anguish. And it's as if God gets to the end here of the text in this paragraph and says, Hey, stop and think about what I just said for a moment because I understand. Hebrews 4.15, we have a high priest that is sympathetic towards our weaknesses. Better translated, that word sympathetic actually means suffers alongside of us. We have a God that enters into the pain, the hurt, the isolation, 
the feelings of I'm all alone in this, he enters into that and says, hey, I'm with you. So verse 16 in Hebrews, therefore we come boldly to the throne. Therefore, as a result of him being with me, I've got confidence in spite of the fact I just want to get away from it all. Verse number 8, I would hurry, David says, I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. I love these verses real quick because we see David's humanity. We see us in this text. David basically says, well, he's done basically. He says, says, destroy, O Lord. Uh, God, kill them. (laughs) And he takes it a step further. He does exactly what we do. He points out their sin. He said, I want you to kill them, and this is why. Because they're horrible. They're, they're doing all kinds of bad things, and thank God we're not like them, right? Kind of some hints of Jonah and Nineveh here a little bit. But, but David is like saying, hey, just kill them. It reminds me of the scene at the end of the movie, Dumb and Dumber. I know I'm dating myself and establishing my, my stupidity there maybe a little bit. But at the very end of the movie, Harry and Lloyd, Harry's been in love with this woman, and, and Lloyd and, and both love the same girl, and they show up, and... The gunman's there to kill them, and they're defending each other. No, shoot me instead. Shoot me instead. And then, you know, they find out that they're both interested in the same girl. And then Lloyd turns and says, kill him. It's kind of that mentality here. David's just like, God, I want to get away. But by the way, just kill them. Just destroy them. I get that way in my depression, in my dark states. I don't know about you and your funk if you ever get that way with people. But people bother me when I'm down. I love people when I'm up. I could have me some people 24-7. I thrive on being with people. But when I'm in a bad mood, get away from me. And that's not good when you got a house of 11 kids. There ain't no place to get away. Now, by God's grace, I've yet to say destroy them, God, right? But we can feel that way. And we'll justify it. Oh, they're, they're pagans. Just wipe them out. Kill my neighbor, God. They're horrible. If you brought your neighbor this morning, I'm sorry. I hope you don't pray that way. But we see David's humanity, and he wrestles back and forth between the, the helmet of salvation and fighting in his own flesh. Verse number 12, he says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you. He's referring to Ahithophel. It is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. He's talking about there, we went up to worship. That's what the throng would do. They would walk together to worship in the temple. He's saying, you used to give me advice and wisdom there. And then we would go together with everyone and we would worship. He says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol or hell. Let them go to hell literally alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Such a sad passage of scripture. The reality, I mean, Pastor Mark's preached on this before, that our relationships have the power to wound us the deepest. And we see this played out here with David, his best friend. And you hear it in David's words, just saying, how could you? You of all people. We went to Hope Fellowship together. We stood on the front row and raised our hands. You, you, you would meet me in your office during the week and give me a counsel. 
how could you do this to me? And he starts out this, this passage by saying, it's not an enemy who taunts me, it's you, my friend. Can I tell you something? When we are in spiritual warfare, when we are attacked, we often, often, often miss who the true enemy is. I said this at the beginning. When things are tough, when someone stabs us in the back, when the boss looks past us and promotes someone else, when someone spreads our gossip, when someone betrays our trust, when someone doesn't follow the instructions and causes problems for someone else, and our lives become upended, and the bank calls and says, you don't have enough money for this, and you go to the grocery store, and your cards decline, and you come home, and all your spouse wants to do is fight with you, and things just aren't looking right, and things are rough and everything else, don't mistake that. For them being the enemy. We have an enemy and his name is Satan. It is Lucifer. It is the devil. It is the old serpent. He is the one we fight about. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 6. But David loses sight of that in his pain and in his brokenness. And he says, Ahithophel, you? I subject you, it is not Ahithophel. It's Satan working behind the scenes using Ahithophel to wound David. Look beyond the person that has hurt you in your life and see it for what it is. That's how you forgive someone who murdered your family. You look beyond it and you say, what could cause this? Darkness causes it. Sin causes it. A scheming devil that wants nothing more than to destroy all of us is what causes it. We look beyond that and say, I forgive, I love, I accept, I extend grace. Why? Because I'm great? No, because my Savior did for me, and that's what the, the helmet of salvation reminds me of, that we have a Savior that took me in my, my pit of pornography addiction and my, my adultery and my hatred and my abuse and my selfishness and my pride and arrogance. He took me out of that and said, I'll pay for it all. And we see David's just brokenness here as he just cries out, God, just let him go alive into hell. Just, just take him. Don't even kill him. Just send him straight to hell. Pain. We're near the end, 16. Oh, I love it. It starts with this, but. It's as if he pours his heart out, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit jars him in his heart, and he remembers his armor. And slowly, we see a change in David's language. He says, but I call to God, and the Lord will save me. I, I don't call Pastor Matthew, although he might get his shield and lock up next to me, and I'm all about that. I don't call my friend Nathan. Where's my boy? There he is in the back. I don't, I don't call Nathan and be like, I'm in the pit. You're, you're my salvation. He's a warrior. He'll hurt some dudes along the way, but he ain't my savior. He's my encouragement at times, my support at times. He's got my back at times, but I will call upon the Lord. David kind of wakes up out of it a little bit. He will save me. He says, evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. David refuses to give up in the morning, at noontime, in the evening. He's still God and he's still good and he hasn't changed. Just because he doesn't respond to the way you want him to in the moment of your battle does not mean he's changed. Keep at it. David keeps at it and he declares this, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle 
that I wage. What battle is David talking about? He's not physically fighting. He's talking about the battle of spiritual warfare. He says, God redeems me in the battle. He redeems my soul in safety. He's the one I run to. I don't take on doves and just run away from my situation. I run to God and say, I need you. And God jumps in and God saves me and redeems me in the battle that I wage. He's not being passive. Like Matthew said, it's an active faith. Many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. Understand this. If you identify yourself as a child of God, there are going to be many against you. I'm talking about authentic Christian living. I'm not talking about wearing the shirt but not living it out, okay? I'm talking about if you stand up and say, I'm all in, be prepared. There are going to be Christians against you. There's going to be churches against you. There's going to be family against you. There's going to be many that come against you. And he says, but God will give ear and humble them. He's leaving it up to God. He, oh, I love this. He who is thrown from old, Selah. Again, he's like, man, you need to stop and think about this. It is God, not you. He's been enthroned from old. He was on his throne back then. He's on his throne today. Guess what? No matter what happens to you tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, he's still God. That never changes. He's still enthroned. He says, stop and think about that. And then he just continues mid-sentence. Because they do not change. They do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. And catch this. He says his speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. I'd underline that. I'd highlight it. I'd get out a Sharpie so it don't erase. His words were as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You know, Scripture tells us that in the days, in the last days, people will be drawn towards teachers with itching ears. In other words, looking for something to soothe them, a little soft oil. Something that sounds good. Something that feels good. Well, if you can dream it, you can do it. All right. (laughs) Right? We attach ourselves to those things that just kind of fill us up and make us feel better. Yeah, I'm all right. I am a good person. Right? David said, be careful. War is in his heart. Why is that important? Because you might be sitting here this morning thinking, I'm not, this, this thing's spiritual warfare, I'm not in no battle. You got, I know we're doing a series on the fight, so, I mean, this might be your thought. You might be thinking, well, we're just sensationalizing this whole thing out of Ephesians 6. We're just hyping it up for the sake of the series. You know, after this series, there'll be another series. I don't, I don't really believe I'm in this battle. I don't really believe there's spiritual warfare. Good happens, bad happens. That's just life, you know. You make the most of what you got. I love you when I say this, but that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's words as soft as butter, as soothing as oil, to get you to buy in to this concept that spiritual warfare ain't real. Things don't just happen, people. God is sovereign and Satan is working. And you better believe he has war in his heart. And he's coming for you. And you might think it's just the dog stepped on a thorn bushel and destroyed your house. 
You know what I'm saying? You might think your mail just got dropped out of the mailbox. You might think your wife just got up cranky on the other side of the bed. Fortunately, my wife never gets up cranky on the other side of the bed because she don't sleep on that side, right? So you might think it's just, well, something got into my kids today. You know, it's their time. It's their turn. They're up on rotation. You might think that the oven just debunked on you and didn't cook. Let me tell you, the enemy is working. He will do whatever he's got to do to discourage you. But God is sovereign. And as much as the enemy has war in his heart, my God is a warrior. You know what I'm saying? And before, before the battle even starts, the war is done. So when I charge down on that battlefield, it's not like, oh, I hope I win today. I've, I've won. What happens to me on the battlefield is irrelevant because the war is done. So we see David move from fear at the beginning of the psalm to just starting to suit up with his armor. Look at the very last verse. I love this. Verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous. The righteous are those that have put on the helmet of salvation. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Hear the language of Ephesians 6 there. Stand, stand fast, having put on the armor, stand firm against the enemy. David here says, once you are adorned with the helmet of salvation, once you are righteous, God will not allow you to be moved. You don't have to worry about, am I going to stand up to this or not? If you are living with the helmet of salvation on, if you are living righteous, you won't be moved because God's going to be in behind you going, I got you. Don't worry about this. We got it. David concludes with this, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. And I love this last phrase, but I will trust in you. There's somebody wearing his armor right there. I mean, think of the transition in 22 verses from, God, are you even there? How do I get out of here to, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. That is huge. He talks about God sustaining him. In other words, you're going to provide. You are the bread of life. You will meet my daily needs. You will give me what I need for the day, not just food, not just monetary-wise, like we saw in that video about the offering. You are going to provide what you want. All I'm going to do is be the conduit to work through that, but I'm trusting in you. You are going to get me through this situation. You will sustain me, my emotions, my energy, my struggles. You've got this. You've paid for it all. You bore it all. The wages of sin was death, and you took that on you on the cross. So I have confidence in you that I will never be moved because I'm placing my trust in you. And the the similarities in this text, I've mentioned a few already between David and Jesus. David and Ahithophel and Jesus and Judas, the similarities in this text are, are striking. And again, it's prophetic of what is coming, but you have Jesus and David both betrayed both forsaken by people they loved, both, both rejected and, and left alone, both uh, Judas and Ahithophel, both of them committed suicide in taking their own life as a result of their actions previously against the king. Both David and Jesus restored at the end of the story as king to rule and reign again. Why would there be so similarities? Because the purpose of this text, the purpose of the sword that we'll get into is to tell us 
that there is truth to be found. But that truth won't mean nothing to us if we don't have the helmet of salvation first. And so we get to that end of the phrase where David says, at the end of the passage where he says, I will trust in you. Some theologians I read called this the grand I will at the end. The grand I will. And I love it. It's so true. When I pray, I will trust. When I faint, when I am depressed, when I am betrayed, when others perish in every condition I can face, I will trust in you, Father. So I end with this. My life, Travis, my life is worth absolutely nothing compared to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So if Father wants me to be slayed in this battle of spiritual warfare, then bring it on, Satan. I am here. Is that you? Are you willing today to make a choice and to stand and say, I will trust in you. Satan, put your bullseye right here. The gospel of Christ matters more than anything you can do to me. You can take my life. You can take my health. You can take my friends. I pray you don't touch my children and my wife, but if you take them, at the end of the day, God, may I say, your glory, your gospel is greater than anything the enemy can ever throw at me because I know this is not the end. And I know we have won the war. And so he might pick off a battle here and there, but ultimately it is irrelevant because he has lost. So I am here, suited up, ready to go. Anyone? To join that fight, let me tell you, Satan will not just sit back and laugh. He will suit up as well. But take joy and confidence because our commander-in-chief goes out in front of us, behind us, beside us, riding on a white stallion with the word of God, a sword sharper than any two-edged sword has ever existed, coming out of his mouth and proclaiming truth. And at the word of God, life happens. And at the word of God, Satan is defeated. That's my king. I'm following into battle. That's my king. Stand with me this morning. We're going to pray and be dismissed. We're going to close in a beautiful worship song that we've sung before earlier. And can I encourage you in a couple areas this morning? I'm past this business of being ashamed being a follower of Christ, if you haven't picked that up by spending any time with me yet, like, we don't got time for that. We don't got time for that. People are in the hospital. My wife last night in the hospital, six ODs. People are dying left and right. Satan is flinging arrows left and right. He's coming for the church, and he's coming for those that aren't in the church. Some of you most likely won't live to see 30. Some of you in here won't likely live to see 50. I may not live to see 50. Are you ready? Are you in this fight? Are you ready for war? Because it's happening whether you're ready or not. It is happening. Gird up. Armor up. If you've got to come down here this morning and pray to God, then pray. That's not me trying to manipulate you. If you need to get something right with God, get it right with God. Lay it down and say, no more. I am all in. I'm done. I'm done playing as a woman, as a man, as a child. I'm done with that. I am all about the fight regardless of whether I get victory in this area or not in my life, regardless if things turn out the way I want it. I am coming to you today, God, and I'm saying I am all in, period. I don't got time for this. Well, I don't know. I'll think about it. You're in or you're not in. 
I pray, I pray God draws your heart because we need you. I need you. Like Matthew said, I need those shields around me. I need those people that will say, I'll do whatever it takes to get reconciliation. I'll do whatever it takes in this fight. If you don't know God, maybe you need to come and just start right there today. We would celebrate that. Like, I don't know about anybody else, but I'd probably get a little crazy up in here. I have a good feeling there will be a couple angels up in heaven joining me in that. If you need God, he is waiting. Pierced hands wide open for you. Or maybe you just need to come fall down and just tell God how good he is. And worship him. Father, God, I love you. I love you. I love you. How you love someone like me. I think it's probably going to be a mystery until I see you face to face and can understand the way you understand. There is nothing about me, humanly speaking, that I look at and I say, wow, that's, that's something God can be proud of. I, I feel like often I fail you. I feel like often I, I could be so much more than I am. As we sing many times, yet you love me anyway. Because your love not based on what I do or who I am. Your love is based on Jesus Christ and what he did and who he is. Because I have chosen to accept that, radically you do something that is supernatural to where you see me and you see Jesus at the same time. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you for that. Father, help us to realize our enemy is not the people around us around us needs love they need forgiveness they need hope they need light they need encouragement they need someone to say i know truth they need someone to say hey this doesn't have to be how things are help us to adorn ourselves in the helmet of salvation daily i pray that for myself as much as anyone else and i pray all this in the name of christ our savior